The views and opinions expressed by guests on the TWBC podcast are solely those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the views of nor constitute an endorsement by the host, TWBC or the advertisers. National Championships, Confederation Championships, World Championships, major professional events. For over three decades, he has been there for many of the sport's greatest moments. And now he brings you even closer to the movers and shakers in the world of high echelon tournament water skiing. From the founder and creator of the Water Ski Broadcasting Company comes the TWBC Podcast. And now here's your host, Tony Lightfoot. Well, greetings, salutations, and a welcome indeed to the this edition of the TWBC podcast. My name is Tony Lightfoot. Glad to have you on board once again. And uh, it is with a distinct pleasure that I welcome uh, my uh, my latest uh, interview guest uh, to this podcast. Uh, those of you that are uh, closely involved uh, with uh, with trick skiing. Or, or even indeed with uh, with trick skiing products, will know this name and know the the company with whom he represents and actually owns. Uh, the person to whom I'm referring to is, of course, Mr. Russell Gay. How are you doing, sir? Good, Tony. Thanks for having me with you. Not a problem. Not a problem at all. So uh, you're 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 here talking to me over the phone from Central Florida. I'm in Baton Rouge, and uh, and and just a few minutes ago, uh, before you actually made it made your way to uh, to the Masterline, uh, the company you own and and operate uh, from, what is it, Winter Garden, uh, Florida? Uh, you actually you actually dropped your youngest daughter off uh, to gymnastics practice, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, my my youngest one, Ella, she's big into gymnastics and so she uh she's going four days a week to gymnastics so um we uh had to take her out to, to gymnastics this morning and then uh yeah i'm talking to you from masterline here so we're in a new location we're right downtown winter garden we uh moved into a new building this this year and that was a big project for us and um but we got a great newly renovated um facility in downtown winter garden and um great place for skiers to come visit and see our product and and we'll be you know expanding to have a showroom and everything here as well so we hope that more people will be able to stop in and see our products and be able to you know come come see us yeah because i went to your uh, former facility which was uh, a little ways down the road uh, from claremont going into winter garden you know and it was Mm -hmm. and it was basically a little office attached uh, to uh, to a warehouse and, uh, and and I mean, what kind of struck me about that facility is, I mean, it was it was really straight down simple. I mean, I mean, you had, I mean, you had the bulk ropes and everything. You you the, the manufacturing methods and all of that, all of that concerned, you know. So I mean, that's what kind of took me back. And it's uh, and it's good to hear that uh, that uh, the water ski uh, pot, uh, the uh, the TWBC podcast uh, actually has a little bit of the pleasure of uh, of highlighting the fact that you're kind of moving onwards and upwards uh, with uh, with Masterline to uh, to a brand new facility. Yeah, we uh, we're happy to be in the new location. It's it's we're right almost right downtown Winter Garden. We're in a great location, and we just uh, got a really new, nice new building. We're a much larger facility than we were at, and uh, our plan is to grow it too. Um, you know, and also expand this building and eventually probably bring more of Eagle here and, and incorporate that here with our 
business here. We're we got a whole nother facility in, in Houston where we make all of our Eagle product. So, uh, um, which was about the size of the other location that you had been to. Um, but now we've expanded here and have a little bit of room to grow here. And, uh, I think this will be a great spot for us, especially for customers to be able to come, you know, we're, we're right in that area with winter garden, Claremont, the ski schools are all close. Mm -hmm. You know, we're right in line with going from all those places to the airport. So it's a, an easy location for, for most of the skiers come to central Florida to visit. So, uh, I think that'll be that'll be great. Yes, and producing products proudly built in the United States of America, no doubt. So uh, let's go all the way to the beginning a little bit, because probably not too many people know of your origins uh, within the sport. I mean, I mean, you're in Central Florida, but much of what you did in the early days uh, with the sport uh, was up in the Northeast, uh, from as far as I can tell. Isn't that correct? Yeah, I grew up in Virginia, so um, you know it was something I did. Um, Memorial, Day, Memorial Day weekend till Labor Day weekend, you know, growing up. Um, we lived on a lake when I was very young, but I didn't really ski at that time. And when I was about 10, we moved off of the lake uh, into the, the little town, which was about 30 minutes from our where our ski lake was, um, or wasn't a ski lake, it was a big public lake. And um, my dad was had grown up in ski, you know, skiing when he, he learned to ski at camp and then, uh, got really interested in skiing. And then he had built that house out at the lake and, and was trying to continue going skiing. So that's how I got into it through my, my parents, my, my mom skied a little bit, my dad skied and, uh, um, they got me into it. And then, uh, yeah, it was something I did in the summer through middle school, um, and high school. And, um, my main sports growing up were, were mostly running. I got into swimming and I was, I fell in love with triathlon and, and I spent a lot of time doing that. So that's what it kept me busy all the rest of the year, but it kept me fit and ready to ski. So when I did ski, I was able to ski a lot. Um, I, at probably 12 years old, I, uh, discovered Bill Peterson's and, um, my dad sent me down to ski school. I, I came down to Bill Peterson's, um, and the first, winter that first winter and like thanksgiving <laughs> and uh there's only two people there that was uh bill and randy shoner who randy works for me now so wow uh it was a fun time you know randy was an amazing skier uh he was a great coach for me growing up with bill um bill peterson was a great place for me to go and learn how to ski and uh or get better at skiing my dad had, had seen him skiing at the nationals and bill really impressed uh my dad with his toe tricks he was just so smooth and so clean and um so and then when he looked at where can i send me to ski school he felt like that was a good family oriented place it's located in central florida it was easy to get to for us and so i went to that's first thanksgiving i spent four or five days down here which bill peterson's is right where i'm at now i mean i that his lake was is five maybe five minutes from where I live now. So it's kind of funny how that all transpired. But, um, and then I would come down at spring break or Christmas or, you know, so just ski, I'd maybe ski two weeks during the winter time. And then Mm -hmm. I would try to get down some in the summertime, but that was my skiing through until college. Um, you didn't do any other events than trick, right? No, I, I, 
I did all three growing up. Um, but we lived on a public lake. A, the uh, slalom course was, you know, every time you wanted to go use it, you'd have to put buoys in. and Or you'd go out there and somebody would cut across the course. Or, or you know, the jump course was always a wreck. Uh, you know, but I grew up slaloming and jumping and, and, and really liking all three events. But I realized, you know, if I'm only skiing three months a year and, uh, you know, I was going to Bill's, which Randy was a, you know, that's what he did. He was an amazing trick skier. Bill was a really good trick skier. Um, and then, you know, at the time, Corey was the guy, you know, it was Corey and Patrice. And, and those two were so amazing. And, uh, and Tori as well. And Tori, yeah, later Tori. But uh, when I was young, you know, Corey was just a phenom. And, and it just inspired me. I was just like, wow, that is amazing what they could do. And, in, you know, in my first nationals, the 78, the 78 nationals in um, – or 79 nationals was in Texas. And I went down there and, um, Tori was the top seed. And that was the first time I met Tori. Uh, and at the time I wasn't, you know, I was just lucky to qualify. I wasn't a good skier, but I, you know, I got to see Tori ski and that was really inspiring. I mean, he was amazing. And, uh, and yeah. And then we, we ended up be- becoming, we, we were all became, I think pretty good friends, Tori, Corey, um, we, we spent a lot of time together. They both had traveled up to Virginia to my parents' house for tournaments. And I came down and skied with Corey quite a bit. And uh, we all had a great competitive relationship um, and had some hard-fought hard battles along the way. But uh, those guys inspired me a lot to really, you know, improve and get better at skiing. Yeah, indeed. Because, I mean, I mean, coming to think of it between like Tori and Corey, you know, between the two of those skiers, I mean, if you were to to basically sum up their tricking technique and style, it would be more like a, a controlled tornado type deal, especially when it came to toe tricks, you know, you know uh, in, and, in and out of toes and that kind of stuff as, you know, in just a blink of an eye, you know, and keeping a very, very high tempo. And, you know... With that, you know, I see elements of that with your with your toe trick skiing. Uh, cer- certainly, when when you when you're compete, competing at the highest level, there, Russ. Yeah, I mean, I, I they were both a big influence on me. Um, what amazed me was the intensity that those guys skied at, and those guys were, you know, Corey's a fun guy to hang out with now, but. You know, he was intense. He was a super intense competitor, and and same with Tori. And those guys were ready to go, and they showed up in the tournament. They were, they were on it. And um, you know, they they trained super hard. I mean, those guys spent a lot of time on the water, as did Patrice. And uh, you know, I came along behind them a little bit. I think one of my first experiences with with them was I got to go to ski school one spring break at Corey's, and I came down, and Tori was not to the level of Corey. He was, but he was on his way, right. and he was. Ski- Skiing with um, just to interrupt here, when uh, Corey ski score that time was at Eagle Lake, right? That's right. Yes, this was back when he was living in Eagle Lake at his parents' house, and I got to come one time down there, and I didn't know anybody, and I showed up there, and um, I thought I was okay. You know, I was getting better at skiing, but you know, I was I was okay, um, but I hadn't been around any good skiers, and I showed up there, and I think as I can remember, it was. Uh, it was Corey, uh, Tori, Sergio Font, Jorge Font, and 
I think it might have been oh Kiko ben, uh, Bazota. So I'm like, I show up and I'm like, oh my god, I'm terrible. <laughs> Everybody here is unbelievable. Like they were all amazing, and um, and that was the first time I got to meet them. That you know that would have been '85 or '86, you know. And then you know a lot of those guys all are, you know we're all still friends now. We had a um, you know they were Kiko lived with me uh, one summer and, and really helped me a lot in my skiing. When, when he got hurt, I think that was in 91, he was amazing, amazing three-event skier. And uh, he hurt his knee, and so he ended up – somehow he ended up at my house and staying there for a while while he was recovering. And he pulled me all day, every day, coaching me and really helping me with – especially toe tricks. We worked hard on that. And then, um, um, you know, Sergio is a good friend of ours as well now and, and Jorge. So it's it's funny how these people you've met in skiing just – you know, these are – these are long, you know, long time friend friendships you end up making in skiing. So that's been one of the big attractions in skiing, I think, for for me. All right, then. So, I mean, you, I mean, you, I mean, you surrounded yourself with some of the very best talent. I mean, you mentioned Kiko Bizzotto. I actually skied a lot against him, you know, uh, during his his time of skiing in the European circuit. You know, was I was involved at that time. You know, and yes, he was an extremely good. Uh, a free event skier. Now, at that time, uh, unbeknownst to a lot of European skiers, there was quite an active scene, still is quite an active scene, at the collegiate level. And you you ski collegiately. Uh, uh, wasn't it for Rollins College, I believe? Yeah, that's right. So that's, you know, where my skiing really took off. I, I was um, just skiing summers and just you know, but I was doing triathlons. I was competing a lot in the, in the wintertime in, in cross country, track, swimming. And um, so it was, it wasn't until I got to go to Rollins and I, uh, that I really took off. And I, I, and it was an amazing time to go to school at Rollins because I just happened to, my freshman year, you know, the, the incoming class was Drew Ross, who was my roommate. Uh-huh. and Tana and Tana Britt Larson. So um, I just was very fortunate to end up starting Rollins with a team with, you know, you already had Helena Shanlander, Kim Laskoff, and a few people on the team. And then we had a great incoming class. And then we had just a, a, a pretty short run, but we had an amazing team for three or four years there while I was there. And um, and led by the and, legendary and, Warren, uh, Warren Withrow, right? That's right. And Warren was a great collegiate coach. I mean, he was very organized. He kept the, he really had the team a great recruiter. So he was able to bring in all these people and Rollins didn't have scholarships. So, you know, none of these skiers were getting scholarships to go there, but he was able to recruit them and, and, and get a, a good group of people there. So that was really a, um, a, a big learning curve there. I mean, I drew was a big influence on me <laughs> which is seems kind of crazy as a, you know, he's a slalom skier, but he, he, he did three events at the time and he was very interested in tricks. Yeah. As, as is, as is evidenced, you know, down the line because his, because his daughter is like one, one of the greatest trick skiers competing right now. And that's where he learned a lot of the tricks was he was, I mean, that was a good thing about Drew. I mean, he, he really focused on slalom. I think Warren was a great influence on, on Drew and, and, and helping him just start to develop his 
thought process and his technique. You know, I don't know if he implemented too much of what Warren was teaching at the time, but I think Warren was a very analytical guy that was always working on skis, always working on technique. And then I think Drew is, you know, a very intelligent guy. And he took the end took that, I think, you know, instilled that in him that, um, you know, to analyze all these things. And he, he liked to come down and he would ski, uh, he would come down and drive for Ton and Britt and Brent Larson would come and coach and, um, and they would be out there for hours and Drew would just be, you know, soaking in all the, the instruction. So he picked up a lot and he would, he helped me a lot with my skiing as well. And then, um, he would go to, um, Ferraro. So, so like a few times we would go down to Mike Ferraro's down in West Palm in the wintertime. We'd go down there. I didn't go as much, but I got to go a few times. And, um, that was really, a you know, a big, that was a great time to go down there. And I, I started to learn a lot because that's when, um, Amrick was down there skiing and Craig and, and Jarrett were down there and Mike and Tangy was starting to, you know, be down there. And Tangy was, uh, both Mike and Tangy really influenced my skiing and, and then definitely, you know, watching Craig and Jarrett and Amrick. And at the time, you know, I, I think the 89 was the 89 worlds were in West Palm. And at the yeah. time I wasn't, at that level, I was, I was improving a lot and really quickly, you know, my freshman year at Rollins and sophomore year. And, and then, um, at that videotape, you know, from the 89 worlds, it had such great coverage. And I, I wore that thing out and I really analyzed like those, those skiers, um, Amrick at the time, that was the first time we really got to see Amrick. And I was like, wow, that was a whole different style of skiing. And then, you know, you'd watch the video Patrice and it's just, incredibly clean like crisp you know just the skiing was amazing and so you st i started trying to incorporate different aspects of those skiers and learn from you know what what craig was doing or what patrice was doing or amrick was doing and amrick was coming out with a much shorter rope and much slower boat speed and everybody was going you know Corey was at the other end of the spectrum trying to go really fast he and patrice were going super fast with a long rope and then it you know, I think it, you know, people started changing up a little bit and they started bringing it kind of maybe more in the middle there, but you started picking up aspects that why you, why certain things were working for some, you know, body overs maybe. And yeah, because you know, I, I, I distinctly remember the commentary from, uh, from Dave Benzel at that time. <clears throat> oh, yeah. It, uh, basically transitioning from one round or from practice into the round of trick skiing. Where and and hopefully I'm quoting verbatim, you know, you know he he cleaned up his tricks by shortening the line and and dropping the boat speed. On in that in that in that in that particular effort, and that produced a world a world a world title there from him, you know, under rather controversial yeah. circumstances. Granted, you know, but you know, you no, know, he came, he came through for the win at that time in '89. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, you know. At that time, the the judging was totally different. There wasn't the boat ju judging from the uh, boat. There wasn't the uh, video um, review and all that kind of stuff. So it was a I don't know how they called tricks those because at that that level of trick skiing at that tournament is incredible. And you can't you can't look at the scores when you look back on some of the skiing. You can't just compare scores because you know the flips came in and made a big difference. But the level and the quality of the stuff that those guys were doing at that tournament in 89 is really in 87. If you go back and watch the, the, the worlds from 
um, was it in in England there? Yeah. Man, Tory had a toe pass there that was just unreal. I mean, I think he did a toe line five front to finish off his run and almost got that in time, which would have been you know, like a six thousand point toe pass. Like it's just the the quality was pretty high even back then. But you can't compare points to points because you know as time changed, pe- people put more time into the flips and less time into the toes and the uh, um, maybe the spins and that type of thing. But um, yeah, that was a fun tournament to watch. And I learned a lot there and started to try to implement those. And then uh, I think that's really what helped set me on the path to where I was could, could then compete at that level. And um, my time at Rollins and, and being around all those skiers and that kind of thing. Uh, and I, you know, i started to, I was still competing in triathlon some, um, and I started to phase out of that and mostly just focus on skiing and really put my effort into that. So, And, of course, you were involved in triathlon long before it was uh, included into the Olympic program, as far as I can tell. But uh, we'll, we, we can circle back to that a little bit, and I'm glad that you mentioned uh, trick points because uh, mine and uh, your good friend, uh, John Horton, whom I spoke to in the previous podcast, when I when I pressed him on the issue on 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 how you would improve the sport, he immediately said, "Go look at trick skin and see if there's something you can do with the point values because they need some serious changing." Would you be in that camp? Yeah, it's um, the hard part with tricks and changing point values is it's hard to just you know really target each trick and figure out which overall definitely something has to be done. Um, but then it's, it's always about like the new things people are doing sometimes seem hard, but as you go progress and you, you spend a few years doing it, then those things aren't quite so hard. And, and now when you look at some tricks and you really compare like a wake seven front to front or a ski line seven front to front, well, like those two tricks of, which is crazy is the same point value, you know, they're totally, I mean, to step over the rope is really adding a lot of difficulty. Um, I think the flips are too high uh, for the basic flip. So you have your back flip and reverse, which are 500. That's probably okay. I don't know that those are worth more than a wake seven, but they are on the on the books. But difficulty-wise, I'd probably say they're they're really not quite as much as should be as much as a, a wake mm-hmm. seven back back to back. And then you go to the but the crazy part with with the point values right now is the uh, the flip, you know, front to back. It's um, you're going from a flip and you just add a 180 and you get 250 points. So, you know, if you if you did a, a flip, uh, if you do a, a front to back, you get 750 points. But then you add a mob, so now you got to add, add a handle pass and a front, and you only get 50 points for that. So if you did a, a front to back you know, flip with a front to back on and on the and landed, and then you just do a front, you get more points than if you do a mobe. Hmm. And so to me, the front to back is just way too high. And I remember there was a lot of criticism when they made the back to front uh, 550. And when you look at it, a back to front is probably, to me, if I had to go out and do one flip and there's a flip, you got to pick one flip, you don't want to fall and it's freezing cold i'll do a back to front that's easier for me than a than a just a straight back flip to me it just feels so effortless to do a back to front 
flip. So 550, you know, made really to me made sense at the time. I was like, there's no risk in that. And so, but I think maybe that was, I wish we could have had the front to backs more in that line because, you know, now you have like, well, and I, I started doing mold five front and mold front to front. I was the first person that was really pushing those flips, but I wasn't I really getting re- rewarded with those for those tricks. But I, to me, I was like, you know, I, I just, I wanted to do those tricks. I thought that was going to help push trick scheme forward. And now you watch like Joel Poland. He's doing some really interesting flips, some fun stuff. He's pushing the sport forward, but none of those things are going to score what they are, you know, worth. Um, so, you know, it seems like it, no matter what flip you do, you get 800 points. So there's, you get, you know, the back-to-back mobs are way too high compared to a front-to-front mob. And then, you know, if you're doing mold five front, you're only getting 50 more points again. So you're only getting 100 points. There's only 100 points separation from a front-to-back, which is very basic, to a mode five, which is a very difficult trick. I mean, you're doing a, a, a 540 spin, with a handle pass in a flip and you're not really, you, you get rewarded for doing, you know, doing a, a surface 360 more than you would almost the, uh, the flip, the added 360 in the air with the flip. So, you know, those things need to be adjusted. It's just, how do you go about it? I mean, I, who's, because as soon as you start wanting to adjust them, then everybody's interest come, comes in and it starts, Everybody starts thinking, how is it going to affect me versus how is it's going to affect the sport? You know, hmm. like what what you got to look at it from how how are we really object? You know, how can you look at it objectively and how is it going to improve the sport ver- versus how is it in- going to improve me? And because it ultimately affects that- the overall as well, doesn't it? For the likes of Poland and Llewellyn, right? For, and, and And others, right? Well, yeah, but it affects skiers, so, I mean, mm-hmm. individuals and their tricks. Uh, I, I think if you can fix tricks, well, it will. It, yeah, well, of course, you know, if you're a good jumper or slalom skier, you don't want to, I mean, and you're not that good a tricker. Definitely, you know, I guess you'd look at it from a different perspective. If you're if you're going to be involved in the voting, you don't want to see it change because it might. I think the goal is to try to separate the, the top level, mid, mid-level a little bit more, like, to create some separation there because now I don't think, you know, some of the, some of the guys are getting separated. So there's some guys that are just so much better, but the points don't, you know, tell you that it's hard. It's hard to tell. And there's, there's guys like Joel. I mean, I think he really could improve with some better points and there's other skiers too that could improve. Like, you know, as we, I think Corey and Patrice, um, they were at a detriment when, when some of the point values came in for flips because they had a 5,400 point toe pass, which is, had a, you know, a really top level, incredibly difficult toe pass. Mm-hmm. You look at the scores today, nobody tricks over five, you know, 5,000 is a top toe pass. So, um, but even that 400 points is not enough separation for the, the amount of difficulty between a 5,000 and a 5,400 toe pass. There's a lot more difficulty there than what the points are, you know, telling you. So, yeah, because I mean, I remember back. You gotta, 
Yeah, because I remember back in the day, you know, I mean, we're, I mean, when when ski lines came into being, you know, I mean, phasing phasing out from like the line steps, you know, which uh, which has which has since been outlawed within within trick skiing for some unknown reason. But the one trick that really, really, you know, took my breath away was a hand to hand wake seven from Corey Picos in the eighty nine worlds, and I don't think I've ever really seen that many people throw that into their runs because the ski lines and and the flips as you mentioned are worth so much more and are easier to execute um yeah well the, i don't think the ski lines really cut into it it was the flips i mean at the time um you know I, that's the that was a trick i started my run with it was a, and actually it was at bennett's that was my first pro win i started um was the pause tour at bennett's and i i had to go head to head with Corey, and i opened with the seven front to front and it was the flips that really eliminated that that trick because the body overs we kind of were we had those four or five decent body overs that you would do and then um we and, and then what it did is it, the flips kind of substituted for the spins um so the the flips kind of came in and you had 500 for a backflip i'm like well i'm not going to do a seven front to front when i can get 500 for a backflip and the reverse and then you know you got the 750s for the half twist you, you it's it'd be worth you putting all your time into getting six flips in versus you know working these crazy runs where you're doing three wake sevens um so that's where i started putting my t- time in because actually yeah that run i was doing I'd start with seven front to front, and I'd do ski line back, back to back, wake seven, wake seven. And then I would do a back to back, and then like a ski line five going inside out. Like it was a, just a crazy start Yeah. Uh, to your run. And and I'm like, man, I, you know, if I can just add six slips in, I don't have to do all that stuff. I can just do four body overs, and I'm, you know, so that's where I started focusing on the, and I, I ended up with the wakeboarding. I, I ended up getting <laughs> sidetracked with wakeboarding for a while, which would, at the time was a perfect, timing because that's when all the flips were we hadn't really developed the flips and trick skiing so i was able to to spend my time wakeboarding but also develop my flipping and i brought that back to wake the, the trick skiing so um i was kind of leading the, the the flips and on the trick ski because of all the wakeboard stuff and that really helped uh Helped me there, but um almost totally forgot yeah. about the fact that you were a wakeboarder as well and amongst all of this yeah, <laughs> me too. It was a long time ago. Yes, indeed. It was, fun, it, it was a fun experience. And, and one of the things that I liked about the wakeboarding was it just opened your views to different things. And you got to, I was at the beginning of it. We were, a lot of us were discussing how, how is the path forward for wakeboarding. You were getting not just a skier's perspective, but you were getting like people from skateboarding, surfing, like snowboarding all these different views coming in telling you how, you know, this is, should go forward. And you're like, you know, really we're in a pretty small bubble when we talk about skiing. And then you like, okay, you get a bunch of skiers together and can talk about tricks and how it's going to go forward. Everybody's kind of on the same path. I mean, you got a few small differences, which makes it really hard to change. But, but when you talk about like wakeboarding at the time, I mean, the, the views were so different. I mean, I, the, one of the first tournaments I came with bindings, they wanted to outlaw the bindings because they thought I was going to have a big advantage because it was all toe straps at the time. And I came with the first set of, of 
double boot bindings on my wakeboard. Maybe. Oh yeah, but I mean, because the, the board's back. The surfer side, yeah, the surfers on the, the surfer influence was saying, no, you can't use boots. But you know, that yeah. would have been a stupid, stupid thing at the time because look where it went. I mean, nobody ever. No, absolutely. On, on boots. Um, so yeah, that, that was kind of interesting. So you had influences like Jimmy Redman, who was a big. Uh, uh, wakeboard judge at the time. He, he was one of the guys in the start. Kind of opened my eyes to different thoughts on how these sports should go. And he always had some really interesting things. So the wakeboarding got, you know, you got to meet different people and, and it, you know, learn different things. And that was interesting, you know. And then you still had a few trick judges that came. And I think Mary Gail Holcomb and Nikki Lee were two of the original judges on the tour judging the wakeboard. So, uh, but I, and I think they learned a lot too doing that. Um, they got really familiar with all the different flips and and it helped their judging when they in trick skiing as well. I think you know they got to be really knowledgeable. I'm just uh, having a hard time, you know, imagining Mary Gail Holcomb <laughs> and Nikki Lee between them uh, judging wakeboarding. You know, but uh, we'll put that to side for side for a little bit of a moment. Yeah, that's a that's a little tidbit people don't know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Or in like a. And Jennifer Ellis, she just got a big uh, award this weekend for wakeboarding. Uh, and I forgot, it just reminded me this weekend at the, at the awards ceremony how much effort she would put into the beginning of wakeboard. But um, At least so it, far yeah. as the USA water, water ski and wake sports level, certainly. But, uh, but I yeah. mean, and, and I mean, like the Jennifer Ellis, I mean, she was, a, she's, she's been, she's, she was a rock star, you know, I mean, I mean, with, with all of that pro tour stuff, you know, she was the go-to person. If you had a question, oh, yeah. Jennifer would, would absolutely nine times out of 10 have the answer to any questions you have at, uh, at, a, at a pro skiing stop, no matter where it happened to be pause tour or wherever. But uh, oh, yeah. I want to circle back a little bit to Rollins College because in amongst all of the skiers there, uh, there was, I believe, one that you took a fancy to and uh, you and you ended up uh, uh, marrying, as, as I believe it. Isn't that right? Well, yeah, that was, uh, you know, Jane Peterson, my, my wife now, Jane Gay, um, she she started, I think I was a junior when she started. And, uh, you know, we skied together some we didn't start dating till after college but um yeah so man talk about a trick i mean we, we had so many good trickers at rollins between you know the larsons and then my wife and then we had uh liz lambert i think we had um who else we had, we had like i think at the nationals collegiate nationals you know it, we'd be, we'd sweep the top five with the tricks you know and that would be all over four thousand points back at, back then so um yeah we had an amazing team especially for tricks and and yeah jane was a great especially toe tricker she was such a good clean smooth toe tricker and um people i think forget how, how much how good a skier she was back then and and i mean cer- i mean certainly running forward i mean you I, I mean i mean you started off a great relationship there continues to this day and what what did you graduate from Rollins for? I, I suspect it's probably a business degree. I would I would imagine. Yeah, that's right. You know, business and communication. So we, I um, went into that. That's yeah. So I guess that's why I had an interest in business back then. I um, I was just trying to graduate. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm guessing between you and it Drew was, Ross, it was hard to it was hard to get classes and and studying it with all the ski. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, you had a lake right next to next to campus, so I mean, you had that access there. And if you wanted to go a little further out, it was just a well, a relatively short drive down the road to to Petersons and that kind of stuff. So, but but I was about to say between you and Drew Ross, I mean, you seem to have pretty good heads for business, and that kind of spilled over into the whole deal with your main business interest now, which is uh, which is Masterline and the associated companies that fall underneath that banner but uh, but from as far as i can tell i mean i looked i looked a little bit into the history of 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 the company and it it wasn't originally formed as a company within the united states right i mean it it was it it formed uh, between two skiers from a little further afield right yeah that's right i mean uh uh Mick Neville was the one that was the main, Mick and Karen Neville were the, the main people in, involved with uh, Masterline. I think- Not Brett too shabby a trick, trick, tricker himself. That's right, yeah. And, and or, or, you know, Mick was an incredible overall skier and, and, and slalom skier. And, uh, and he started the name Masterline from him winning um, Overall, the Masters. That's why. That's how he came up with the name Masterline for the company. So, mm. um, and then he was involved. I think Brett Thurley had a little bit of involvement with it at the beginning. Um, I re- I actually remember there was a picture of them in like a water ski magazine, you know, uh, advertising their products, and at the same time they were sitting down, squatted down, like eating eating tubes of Vegemite at the same time, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. So. Uh, Mick, and then, the, the, so that, I graduated from Rollins, and then afterwards, and I'd gone to ski with Sammy a little bit, but Sammy lived out in Windermere, where I, and, um, where, and I'd gone out there and skied at his school a few times, when, especially when I was at Bill's, if I, just to go somewhere else, I'd, I'd go, maybe go run over there and ski some with him, um, and that was another big influence, is really training with Sammy, and the first time I rode in a boat with him, just you're just in awe. It's like, Oh my gosh. I mean, the intensity level too. Cause I, I wasn't used to that. You know, you're used to seeing my dad ski and people like that. And then you go and sit, sit, you jump in the boat and watch somebody at that level. You're like, wow, it's just a whole different deal. I mean, the intensity level that they're training at, and that was even Sammy tricking. He was amazing <laughs> trick tricker as well as, you know, overall skier. But Sammy, um, he was, I rode my bike. I'd come out to Windermere all the time and ride my bike. And one day I rode by and I saw a for sale sign out front of his house. I was like, wow. I couldn't believe he was selling his house, but he had built a house right next door. So he was selling this house. So I ended up, ended up um, purchasing the house that he was selling. And, and that was after I graduated from Rollins. And then, um, so I was, I got to live next door to Sammy. And my first morning, I remember, you know, waking up and I look out the, the window and I had overslept and I looked, I opened up the curtains and I was like, there was like 30 people on my beach. And I'm like, wow, what's going on? This is, this was like mid May. And it was everybody there coming to train with Sammy. Cause he, Sammy had the, I think he had the boat or he had a couple of the drivers that were going to drive at the masters. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, you look out there and everybody that's skiing in the masters is sitting on the beach. It's <laughs> basically on the dock and on the beach. And I'm like, Wow. I mean, no Let's get the tournament people. done already. Let's get some judges. Let's get yeah, the tournament so, done. <laughs> so I was like, just in awe. I couldn't get outside fast enough, you know? And then, so I, I got to grow up, you know, have a, a and 
Mick was training with Mick and Karen would train um, Bruce and Tony a little bit. Um, would all train with Sammy. So I got to know Mick and uh, through that. And then at one point, his dad got sick, and um, he just realized you know he was trying to to bring Masterline to the United States, and it was just it was something he had just started to do, but you know, once his dad got sick, he just wanted to get home and, and, um, be with him. So he had talked to us about it. And first I wasn't that interested. I, was like, eh, I don't know. But then we thought about it and had another look at it and realized, well, oh, maybe that's a good opportunity to do. So we ended up purchasing it from Mick and, um, you know, and that, that was in 93, I think that was. So, um, I've had it since then. So, so like September of 93. So, so September of 93, which means that uh, next year you'll be celebrating three decades of ownership of the Masterline brand, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. There you go. And uh, Randy's been with me since, since about that time, maybe a year after. I, I, I had probably owned it about six months before I had, and then I had Rand, Randy was coming in and helping me a little bit at nights after ski school at Bill's. And then eventually I hired him to help. You know, budget. So, uh, you know, and that was probably, I've gotten lucky with a few decisions, you know, and that was definitely one of the ones that was another good, lucky decision that I made is, uh, you know, bringing in Randy, Randy's such an amazing guy and he's just such a, um, uh, just a great guy to have around and, and, and run the business. And he was so knowledgeable. So that's been, really helpful for me to be, that helped me be able to keep on with my skiing and still have a business and all that. So, and certainly with respect, you know, I mean, what was the old business adage? You make, you make your own luck in this world, in the world of business, yeah. I guess. I guess. Yeah. It's definitely about the people and you got to have the right people. And I've been fortunate to have, you know, at least, you know, we've had our share of not so good people, but we've had a few good people that have just been amazing. And we've gotten, you know, really lucky there. So, um, that's, that's part of staying a bit, you know, be able to stay in business. You've got to have the right people, surround yourself with the right people. And, and, you know, we've been fortunate there. Even right to this day, because recently you had a, a one Sean Hunter, work a little bit with you over, over, over the summer <laughs> in between his studies at, at Alabama, correct? That's correct. Yeah. He was here this summer and, uh, shoot, we, you know, it was so difficult with the, this environment right now is really hard. And so we, had a hard time hiring people. So Sean was helping and Anna was helping and um, Ryan was helping this summer trying to, you know, just get product out because, you know, they were making the ropes and we put Sean on measuring the ropes. So, you know, he has a interest in them being accurate. So it's, um, of course he, he was, does. <laughs> <laughs> you got to have somebody, you know, that's really particular about it. So we had him measuring all the slalom ropes this summer. And, uh, so if those you know, ropes were great, out of homologation, he was the guy to talk to. Yep. <laughs> or probably it was the ones he didn't measure then <laughs> if they were out because he did a lot of them. But, you know, when they come in after they try to ski in the morning, come and then come in and help at Mastron. So, uh, yeah, I was fortunate to have them help me uh, when times got tough because it was, yeah, it was a crazy year. I tried to keep up with, uh, you know, it was really difficult to hire any employees. So. Okay, yeah, and, and I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously, the last couple of seasons have been rather hard on everybody. I mean, I mean, I mean, COVID nineteen, uh, I mean, basically touched every single thing that happened in the entire world. I mean, and and including uh, the manufacturing industry, which is 
which is what master line is essentially is you know with the ropes and the accessories and all that kind of stuff and the raw materials come from somewhere don't they in order to make the ropes and stuff like that so i can imagine how how much more difficult it is to actually obtain those and actually meet the demand for those ropes going forward right and uh, with that, uh, we'll uh, we'll take a little bit of a break here and uh, conclude uh, this part one of uh, of my interview uh, with uh, with Russell Gay. We thank him so far for his participation. the uh, The next time you hear the TWBC podcast, we will be rejoining him with the answer to that question on uh, part two. So until then, it is ciao for now. Thank you for listening to the TWBC podcast. Be sure to check out our website at waterskibroadcasting.com. Links to our presence on major social media platforms can be found there, as well as updates to our webcast and this podcast. Duplication or rebroadcasting of this broadcast without written consent of TWBC is prohibited. Subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform and be sure to join us next time for the next edition of the TWBC Podcast.